This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. It was important to look at the extremes and see how that would affect the aroma quality or the chemistry analysis. Hop quality seems to be less sensitive to temperature than we had originally thought. Given that, you know, even modest changes in temperatures might result in an increased throughput for, um, for a hop grower. This week on the show, new information regarding how hop kiln temperature impacts hop quality. Hi, my name is Lindsay Rubottom, and I'm with Oregon State University. Hi, this is Tom Schellheimer. I'm uh, I'm getting some feedback. (laughs) Hi, this is Tom Schellheimer. I'm a professor at Oregon State University. As I'm sure you are well aware, the Hop Quality Group has studied how various kiln parameters affect hop quality. Tom Nielsen presented some of their results during the 2013 Master Brewers Conference. We also discussed that a bit back on episode 43, but there's still a lot more to learn in this area. Lindsay, I watched you give an excellent presentation during the annual Hop Growers Convention in January, and I hear we should also expect to see you at the upcoming Olympics of Brewing Conferences known as the World Brewing Congress, which is happening this August in Minneapolis. Let's hear how you decided to approach this rather complex subject of how various kilning parameters affect hop quality. I think that when it comes to hop quality, kilning is like such an important step. Like there's so many processing steps that go into growing hops and the kiln is something that will have a direct effect on brewing quality potentially. And we work with a group of like we are, we call it our kilning advisory committee and they kind of guide us in what they think is important. It's like made up of brewers and growers and kiln manufacturers to kind of guide like where kilning kind of became the big topic because with all of those other things like bed depth and airflow, while those might have like impacts that air on temperature coming from the plenum through the hot bed seems to be the like biggest candidate where quality could be affected. 
I'll also add that some of the folks that were on that hop quality study, like Tom Nielsen and, and Pat Smith, are part of this advisory committee. And that the work that we're doing kind of stemmed from from their work. And when, when you look in the literature, there's actually very little literature about anything published about the effect of kilning on hop quality, aroma hop quality. There's stuff from the 70s and even some of the 80s where people have looked at kilning on uh, alpha acid concentration. And for many years, that was like what people focused on, right? If you think back, just roll the clock back 20 years. And, um, and there wasn't a broad selection of aroma hops available to craft brewers or, or brewers in general. And the main focus for growers and for at least a large-scale brewers was alpha acid utilization throughout the entire supply chain. Like, how effective could a grower be uh, producing that? How, um, you know, what was the quality of the alpha acid throughout storage, um, hop acid utilization during wort boiling? All important topics, but there wasn't really much work and much mention to the aromatic impact as a result of, um, of kilning. So that was you know, something that, that we kind of thought was a missing component when you look at um, hop quality in general, particularly for the 21st century brewer where uh, we're using hops at, at unprecedented levels. And so we, 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 as I mentioned just in this long answer, um, Tom Nielsen and Pat Smith, who were part of that 2012-2013 project that the Hop Quality Group had started, were on this committee, and um, and this is the, the evolution of that that work. Okay, let's hear about the experimental design. Talk about how you set all this up. So for this experimental design, it was important to, for us to look at two major like aroma cultivars that people are using at a high rate or brewers are using a lot. So we use Simcoe and Amarillo. And we in 2018, because this is a this is year two of a three year study that we've recently presented on there, we've moved to commercial scales, where in previous years, we've worked with pilot scales for Amarillo, but now we're looking at all commercial scales in commercial kiln beds at 120, 140, and 160. While we know like those are pretty, like that 120 is really low and that 160 is like really high, it was important to look at the extremes and see how that would affect the aroma quality or the chemistry analysis when we're looking at these hops back in the lab. Okay, and you did this with um, you did this from with uh, on multiple farms too, right? Yeah, so we worked with four different commercial farms, two commercial farms for Simcoe and two for Amarillo. So then they were either in Washington, Idaho, or Oregon. All right, and I believe you did. So you did the the three temperatures, um, but you you didn't just do them once. You did multiple replicates of, yeah. of each. Yeah, so we well. did each temperature two times at each farm. And we really tried to make sure that the replicate came from a different field so that we're also kind of getting that field variability from the hops as well. Okay, cool. I think most brewers have seen a hop kiln or at least pictures of one. Do you want to describe what and I guess where you were collecting data from inside of these kilns? Yeah, so we were collecting data in the plenum where we were measuring that air on temperature because that's the big one of the big key parts of this study. And we were also collecting temperature data within the hop bed. So looking at the bottom, middle, and top of the bed, kind of just monitoring that throughout. Okay, walk us through what you observed on that first set of reps. 
Yeah, so the the design of the study involved measuring uh, the air quality going onto a hot, or the hotbed and coming off of the hotbed. Um, and the main thing we were controlling was air on temperature. As a hotbed dries, the the moisture is leaving the the cones and leaving the bed, and it does so uh, in most, if not all, uh, American hop kilns from the bottom first, because the air was pushed onto the the bed from the bottom. And so we were looking at temperatures throughout the bed from the bottom, middle, and top, and we could see that that the bottom of the bed temperature comes up to the air on temperature relatively quickly, and then followed by the middle of the bed and the top of the bed as the, the moisture leaves the, the bed and, and the air, um, the bed temperature comes up to the air on temperature. And we can follow the, the relative humidity of the air coming off the bed um, and see that initially in the first few hours, the relative humidity is quite high. And then as the bed loses a lot of its moisture, that relative humidity of the, the air coming off starts declining. Tom, do they, um, are they always um, applying heat immediately, or do do they ever do they blow air first before they turn on the heat? So remember. yeah, it depends upon the grower in question um, how they operate the temperature profile and fan speed of the um, of the kiln. So for the design of this experiment, we asked the growers to keep the that air on temperature constant. Okay. Uh, so we had a, a, a static air temperature that ran for the life or the duration of, of each trial. Um, we let the the folks who work at each farm decide when to tell us that the bed was done, that it was dry. Um, and we would verify that with our own analytical measurements afterwards, but we weren't driving the, the ship in this case. We were letting okay. the, the local guys. And uh, certainly at the end of the kilning process, they'll turn the air I mean, the, the, the burners off and leave the fans blowing to allow the bed to cool down to ambient temperatures. But as you point out, there, there are some instances where, where growers might increase the temperature at the front end for a little bit and then, and then dial it down. Um, one of the differences that we saw between these two different, um, a number of different farms is that two of the farms had a newer kilning system with some equipment that the industry calls measure tech it's a it's a way to basically look at the the drying process of the bed and provide some feedback control to the blowers on the kiln because when the bed is first placed or the hops are first placed in the bed they're wet they're heavy the bulk density is is relatively high uh, within the life of the the killing cycle, and so the air on t- uh, the air on speed, uh, the, the fan speeds can be turned up uh, quite high. But as the bed dries out, then the bulk density of the bed starts dropping, and if the air speed is too high, you can actually blow out holes into the bed, and that creates a, a headache for the hot farmer because now the bed's not drying. And so these measure tech systems will actually. Um, sense the pressure going across the bed and dial the fan speed back appropriately. So we had that for two farms, the two Simcoe farms, but the uh, Elk Mountain farm and the uh, Crosby Hop farm don't have the measure tech system installed on the kilns that we were using. And so their approach to drying is a little bit different. There's more of a manual intervention there. So the the kilns themselves are not, we don't have four fields that have, or four farms that have four identical kilns. We have two two farms that have very similar kilns, but two other farms that don't. So there is an element of a, a, a farm factor uh, within the study.
All right. Got to be ready with that sheet of plywood to throw over the hole when it blows out, right? No kidding. In fact, we had that we had that happening uh, with one of the farms for one trial um, that we, you know, they, they've struggled with um, blowouts uh, just for one, one rep of one, one temperature, which is kind of neat to see that, 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 that in fact happens, but it didn't happen so ubiquitously as to, as to create havoc with the design of the study. Do you want to talk about the difference in drying time at these various temperatures? Because we're talking about some pretty significant differences here, right? So when we're like looking at these different temperatures, when you're looking at like a 120 trial versus a 160 trial, regardless of the variety or the kiln that it's in, we see a huge time difference in how long it takes to dry. So like a 120 could take anywhere from 10 to 13 hours, where a 160 treatment might take four and a half to six hours. And that's such a huge time difference. And the implications of that for the grower side is if you could get hops out of the bed faster without affecting that brewing quality, then you can, the turnover is higher. So you don't get backed up in the kiln process where it turns out like that's kind of a bottleneck for growers is you only have limited kiln space. And then you can all harvest your hops closer to their optimal harvest maturity if you can get them through that bottleneck faster. The caveat here is that the quality of the hops doesn't change as you change temperature. That's kind of what we're probing here. The, um, and, and certainly we don't have, we're not selling kilns or, or selling hops for that matter. So we don't really have a dog in the fight from the standpoint of what should be the, the, the best temperature. Um, but what we're finding as as we go through this conversation is that the hop quality seems to be less sensitive to temperature than we had originally thought. Uh, and as Lindsay pointed out, given that, you know, even modest changes in temperatures might result in an increased throughput for um, for a hop grower, which I think is is great. Yeah. And it's yeah. exactly. We just see flat lines for all temperatures, all reps, both varieties. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by Brewer Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingaman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingaman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingaman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And thank you also to Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. From large and small breweries to home brewers, we've provided the beer industry with the best fermentation yeast since 2003. 
The yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch fermentous yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit Fermentus.com. A lot of upcoming district meetings will be disrupted by the coronavirus pandemic as social distancing measures go into effect throughout the Americas. Definitely check out the event calendar at mbaa.com for the latest information. Otherwise, here's what the calendar looks like as of March 13th. Districts Mid-Atlantic, Midwest, and Michigan have all canceled their spring meetings. District St. Louis meets at Urban Chestnut March 19th. District Eastern Canada's event during the Nova Scotia Craft Beer Conference is canceled. District Milwaukee joins forces with the Wisconsin Brewers Guild for a technical conference March 26th in Green Bay. The District Texas Spring Meeting has been rescheduled. The new date for that is May 29th in Fort Worth. District Eastern Canada's meeting in Montreal has been canceled. The District New England Spring Meeting is April 3rd at East Rock Brewing in New Haven, Connecticut. District St. Louis meets April 16th at Second Shift Brewing. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course begins April 26th in Madison. District Northern Rockies meets May 1st in Butte, Montana. District Philly meets May 1st at Stouts Brewing Company in Adamstown. The District Northern California Spring Meeting is May 7th at Drake's Brewing. District Northern Illinois holds its Spring Technical Conference May 8th at Hofbrau House in Chicago. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River May 15th and 16th. District Midwest meets at BrewDog June 27th. The best brewing conference worldwide only happens every four years and it's happening this August. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. How much variation in the data was there from one rep to the to the next at the same farm? And then what about when you ran the same setup at a different farm? So when we like, before we get into like talking about the chemistry data, we, for the most part, in most cases, we didn't see a rep effect. The chemistry and even the temperature treatments were pretty consistent with that air on temperature being like, pretty, pretty tight between farms. I mean, most sometimes there was like a two to three degree variation within a farm and same kind of variation was observed for like, um, like on the other farm, but each kiln was kind of different. So it was kind of, um, you know, something that we had to keep in mind when we have a target temperature, but what our actual temperature ended up being for drying. There are several variables to consider in regards to kiln operation, but even more parameters when it comes to evaluating hop quality. Tell us about the battery of analyses you decided to run these hop samples through at OSU. We ran so many analyses. We did um, alpha and beta acids using HPLC and UV viz, and just to make sure that we're with these two ASBC methods that they agree with each other. You did HSI. Um, steam distillation to get our total oil content and then did oil composition using GCFID. And we also looked at the enzymatic dextrin reducing power. So looking at their like hop creep potential, so to speak. 
All right. Um, I guess let's dive into some of these individually. How about some takeaways for Total Oil? For Total Oil, we really did not see that it was significantly reduced with drying temperature. Use from the data that we collected, we noticed that there might be some slight downward trends, maybe even but in some flat trends, but it doesn't seem to be dramatically affected, especially when considering the like temperature range we're looking at. When we're looking at the change from 120 to 160, we're not seeing a huge effect with total true, oil. True, true across both varieties, right? Yeah, that was true across both varieties. Okay. Any surprises for alpha acids? You know, we actually saw with the alpha acids, the data seemed a little bit more noisy, but still not generally um, dramatically impacted. Where we do see some evidence of like rep effects, where the data like from one farm, like rep one versus rep twos, maybe has different values, but generally not greatly impacted. All right. How did these different kiln temperatures impact HSI? They didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. Um, When we plotted out the data, it was just flat lines across the board. It was actually pretty, pretty crazy and kind of unexpected because that was a big area that people were kind of focusing on is like, well, what about the HSI? And we just see flat lines for all temperatures, all reps, both varieties. All right. Nothing but good news so far. You you also used a fold change calculation, which sounds like something you better explain. Yeah. So this concept of fold change, it's, um, it's something that when working with our statistician, Cliff Pereira, he suggested to, to take this approach in part because we were seeing some reductions and some increases. And, um, and when you start looking at... Um, at that on a percentage scale, things start getting skewed. That is like a, um, at least visually how they, how they stretch across, um, some data space and full change is a, I think, uh, while it's a concept that may be somewhat, uh, foreign to some folks, it makes for data interpretation a little bit easier. That is, and if you look at a twofold increase, which would be like a hundred percent increase that, that and you look at a twofold decrease, which is a 50% decrease. You can see how, you know, a twofold increase or a twofold decrease um, looks uh, different than a 50% decrease or a hundred percent increase. So the full change allows us to, to be looking at how yeah, ratios essentially of, of changes of different components. So our approach was to to estimate what the individual analyte would be at 120 degrees uh, Fahrenheit air on temperature and what it would be at 160 degrees Fahrenheit. We're using estimates here because the air on temperature might not be exactly 120. It could be 119 or it could be 121. Um, and these estimates are coming from just a linear regression of the analyte behavior relative to the the air on temperature and then the fold change was a sim- simply the the fold change going from 120 to 160 which represents a, a really broad range of temperatures and we and we realize that we're t- trying to use the extreme here and and certainly we're not saying that growers should be 
um, kiln in at 120 or 160 for that matter. But looking across 40 degree Fahrenheit temperature change, which would re represent the maximum in this study, the full change was looking at sort of you know, the extreme case. And so for some uh, analytes, uh, we've talked about like hop oil or hop acid. You know, we would see a full change that um, was in the range of, let's say, 0.9 to, to 0.8. Um, so slight uh, reductions. And there were some instances where um, we might see an actual increase. Um, there is, I think, one of, the, one of the analytes that we saw um, increases in were um, some of the individual components. A little bit with total oil, one rep out of one trial had a slight increase in going from 120 to 160. And in fact, some compounds like beta per, beta mice, uh, beta pinene and myrcene increased, you know, by a quarter fold. I think our, in general, the full change indicated that there was a slight downward trend with increasing temperature going from 120 to 160. But in many cases, it was it was very very slight. You know, it was in the range of. 0.9, which would represent a 10% reduction, um, or 0.8, uh, a 20% reduction in going from these extreme, from one extreme to the other. I just wanted to point out that when we're looking at these temperatures, we're like Tom had said, there was a 40 degree difference here, and when this is applied potentially in real world, a farmer is not going to change their kiln temperature by 40 degrees. It'll likely be a five degree change and that 10% decrease over 40 degrees is likely to be negligible over five. There's a pretty important new variable to study that wasn't such a hot topic back when the hop quality group first started looking at kilning and that's hop creep, which Tom, you've joined us to talk about a couple different times now. You guys also looked at hop enzymes on these trials um, from the kilns. What did you find out? For um, our, what we noticed in our data is the, regardless of the farm, the variety, and the rep, that we see a decrease in that hop creep when looking at temperature with respect to the amount of sugar that we get produced from these enzymes, this fermentable sugars from the unfermentable dextrins in this um, lab scale dry hop method that we use and it's pretty crazy but that we see this but we also see that there's different baseline like enzyme activity for farm between farm rep and um, variety but the base the response is the same it appears to us you did some sensory analysis on these hops and i believe you either did or plan to do some brewing trials as well what can you tell us about all of that so we did sensory analysis on the 2018 and 2019 hop grinds. We did, and then we had 2018 brewing trial beers that we did sensory analysis on. And we are actually starting to brew the 2019 beers this week. Right. So cool. exciting stuff. T tell us a little bit about how you did the, you know, what exactly you did from a sensory standpoint, I guess. We used a method called difference from control because we want to really establish, we wanted to establish if there was a difference between these samples. So we used a 
control, which was a process control from each farm. So that's the typical drying temperature that they would use on that farm. And we took that control and compared it to each of the temperatures. So a 120, 140, and a 160, and a blind-coated control within the set. So you would expect that to be zero difference with the control. And then if there was differences, you would see a higher score with the 120, 140, 160 if a difference was present, present or it would be lower if it wasn't. I think, you know, yeah, one thing to point out is that certainly the, that the, the chemical measurements um, are somewhat easy measurements to carry out, and we can look at them across a whole range of different analytes. And they provide us some insight as to what might happen from a sensory perspective, but they're not necessarily predictive of sensory. And so as part of the study, we, in addition to doing the chemistry analyses, we began doing sensory analyses on these same treatments. Does a 20 or 40 degree difference in kiln temperature have any obvious impact on hop uh, or beer aroma or not? Um, we see it seems like what and this kind of goes along with what we had seen in the 2018 data and 2019 data that Simcoe seems to be temperature insensitive and Amarillo seems more temperature sensitive. And when we look at this, when we see the from comparing the hop grinds to the beer, for at least the case for 2018, we see that some of those differences we saw in the Amarillo hop grinds are kind of muted or nuanced when you look at the beer data, the beer sensory data comparatively. With these, I'm sure these discrimination testing, we weren't able to find large differences in fact in most cases any significant differences for many of these treatments and um in the instances where we did find differences as uh, Lindsay pointed out the the 2018 amarillo data it seems like there was a temperature effect we haven't actually characterized what those differences are it doesn't mean that the differences are good or bad they just they were there um but the fact that the differences appear in the hop grinds and then don't appear in the beers um, you know, leads us to wonder to what degree do you, you know, where do you put your attention? Hop growers typically make selections based upon hop grinds, but the ultimate performance of these hops are in the beers that they brew. And so it's, you know, which, which target do we, do we chase in terms of trying to characterize differences? So what's next, and what do we have to look forward to at uh, the World Brewing Congress? Uh, like I, um, we had talked about earlier, is we're working on 2019 brewing trials right now. And with that, I'm going to be tracking the ferments to look at kind of brewing implications of the lower temperature versus higher temperature. So kind of looking at that, how tracking the ferments and how that affects that sugar profile kind of looking more into that hop creep area and then we'll take those beers and do sensory analysis we'll do the same kind of difference testing and depending on the differences we see in the 2019 beer move on to a descriptive method and then we're going to start planning for the 2020 harvest year that was Lindsay rubottom and tom shellhammer here on the master brewers podcast if you want to hear about what happens next with this project, join us in Minneapolis for the World Brewing Congress this August. Have you figured out which brewing conferences you'll be attending this year? 
there's one that should be your top priority. Like the Olympics, it only happens every four years, and it attracts the best minds in brewing from across the globe. The World Brewing Congress is hosted by ASBC and Master Brewers in collaboration with the Brewery Convention of Japan, the European Brewery Convention, and the UK's Institute of Brewing and Distilling. It's hands down my favorite brewing conference and is packed with the best technical presentations, posters, and networking you will ever experience. If you're serious about your career in brewing, you should be there. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Fermentis. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Yeah.